Delicious Revolution is brought to you by us, by me and Chelsea, specifically by our consulting business. We provide participatory research, communications, and creative work to organizations that are building food movements. What's your food movement? Let us know and get in touch. Delicious Revolution Show. Talk about issues. It's, it's like what MFK Fisher said about feeding our many hungers. How we treat our food system, how we consume food is a reflection of how we are in the world. And I think by helping people to remember those connections, we bring even issues that are far away, you know, even issues that seem far away, like up close. Somehow or another, you know, the, the conversation has moved towards some people have taste, quote unquote, and some people don't. And we look to Yelp reviews or we look to Michelin stars and we start to give away some of our power around that. And, you know, my very strong desire is to remind people that this system is created by us, that the agricultural system that is in place, that the food distribution system that is in place is something that we actively participate in and that we can reshape with every meal and you know to say eat differently to look at these choices and realize like that you are you are reshaping this or shaping the system that we have and and that your taste matters the democratization of this is key to me because i really do feel like more and more we see this kind of separation between those who kind of know where it's at and understand food and have a sophisticated view of it and then the rest of us. And I'm unwilling to accept that as as a reasonable response. Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. I'm Chelsea Wills. And I'm Devin Sampson. We talk with people who work in and think about all aspects of food, including farmers, chefs, artists, and activists, bringing you in-depth conversations with some amazing people. On this third season of Delicious Revolution, we're bringing you stories and perspectives from the unseen places in food systems, going behind kitchen doors, into underground nests of native bees, under the waves, and to the faraway origins of flavors we love, just to name a few. I'm speaking with people who work with food in places we normally cannot see or don't notice. It's a season of unseen stories of food. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Just search for Delicious Revolution wherever you get your podcasts and you'll find us. Our website is deliciousrevolutionshow.com where we have pictures, links, and more information about all the people on our show. Simran Sethi is a journalist and educator focused on food, sustainability, and social change. She was named the Environmental Messenger by Vanity Fair, a top 10 eco-hero of the planet by the UK's Independent, designated one of the top eight women saving the planet by Mary Claire. Simran is the author of Bread, Wine, Chocolate, The Slow Loss of Foods We Love. It's a beautiful book, it's personal, and it's the story of changes in food and agriculture told through bread, wine, chocolate, and coffee and beer. She is an associate of the University of Melbourne's Sustainable Society Institute in Australia and contributor to Orion Magazine and a recent visiting scholar at the Cocoa Research Center in St. Augustine, Trinidad. Here's Chelsea's interview with Simran Sethi. Hey, Simran, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to have you here today. Um, I guess I just wanted to start by... I, I was I was preparing, looking at all the things you've done, and you've you've really spanned a lot of issues about environmental subjects. And what brought you to food? You know, I think food is kind of the connective tissue of my life. 
and food was always there. I just didn't realize how I could weave it into everything I cared about around social justice and around environmental concerns. Early on, it was sort of separate from that. But what I, what increasingly happened over time was that, you know, I was, I was an academic and I was teaching classes on environmental journalism and started to move them, you know, to filter kind of the whole the whole story of the environment through food and agriculture. And then I found my reporting and journalism was really tending toward food and agriculture as well. And I realized that that's how I wanted to engage with the world and do my work that, you know, in the career I've had in environmental, you know, journalism and advocacy, I've talked about myriad environmental issues but I don't think people have a deep connection to something like the electrical grid, even though, of course, we cherish light. We need electricity. We couldn't have this conversation without it. But the intimacy of food and the ability for food to transcend so many divides, be it political, racial, you know, gender, uh, geographical, I feel like is is something sacred and is something humbling and is where I want to spend the rest of my life doing my work. Yeah. Yeah. And in your book, I feel like you keep coming back to that, right? You talk about, you talk about love and you talk about connection and you talk about relationships and it feels, um, for me, like what I kept coming back to in your book is the sense of intimacy with what that means. Do you feel like that's a thread that kind of follows through? With your- Absolutely. I, you know, I, I set off to write a book about the loss of agricultural biodiversity, which is effectively the loss of diversity in everything that makes food possible, from the soil to the seeds to pollinators onto crops and livestock and, and aquatic life. But what I realized through this journey, which it took me, um, gosh, it took me five years to get across six continents to do the research, um, was that it was really a book about love that the connection to food was really one about relationship and that if I could bring it back for myself and for others to that central place that, um, you know, not only do I firmly believe this kind of anecdotally, but, but research bears this out that, that we will be able to affect change, you know, and that was kind of something that I was really bumping up against in, in some of the other environmental discourse was, like, gosh, how many more times do I have to tell you to weather strip your house? You know, like what, what there's, I was on the Oprah Winfrey show. And I remember the third time I was on the show, they kind of bring me out for earth day. And the producer called me up a couple of days ahead of time. And she said, Simran, is there anything new or sexy in weather stripping? And I was like, nope, still just weather stripping, you know, right, <laughs> like, right. nothing there. Got, you know, just do it. You know, it's really great to do. And saves you money, helps the environment, you know, and, and I realized like, that's it, you know, with food to talk about issues. It's, it's like what MFK Fisher said about feeding our many hungers. You know, this is how we treat our food system, how we consume food is a reflection of how we are in the world. And I think by helping people to remember those connections, we bring even issues that are far away, you know, even issues that seem far away, like up close. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think, it's a visceral process, right? So there's no there's no way of avoiding it, and everybody's an expert because you have to do it all the time, right? Whether whether you love it or whether you don't love it, and um, something that felt really interesting to me was thinking about this. Well, uh, five years doesn't seem like that long of a time to me to like explore all of these. All of these could be a whole book, 
right? All of these subjects. They're so complicated. There's so many things to um, these commodity chains and the relationships and how people produce, uh, you know, bread and wine and chocolate and beer. And I mean, I got, I got towards the end and I was like, why can't the octopus chapter be as long as the rest of them? Come on. <laughs> because my editor wouldn't let me, I, I actually gave a manuscript and that's about the, the book runs about 300 pages. I submitted a 400 page book and they, the very first response I got was, I mean, and I'm using the page count instead of the word count, but it was like, you do realize it's supposed to be 250, right? Like that I kind of already overdid, but I want to go back to what you said about everyone being an expert. I think that's actually one of the challenges about food is that, you know, taste is something that we all do and we all have, but, but somehow or another, um, you know, the, the conversation has moved towards some people have taste quote unquote, and some people don't, you know, and, and we look to Yelp reviews or we look to Michelin stars and we start to give away some of our power around that. And, you know, my very strong, uh, desire is to remind people that this system is created by us, that the agricultural system that is in place, that the food distribution system that is in place is something that we actively participate in and that we can reshape with every meal. And I mean this so sincerely, and I feel like in so many realms, it's like, well, you know, I don't know what kind of impact I can have on the electrical grid, you know, to, to sort of use that example again, you know, or I don't feel any sense of power when, you know, the response is like, write your elected official, you know, I, I, as a matter of fact, I feel disempowered by that kind of action often like in this, in this day and age, but, but, you know, to say eat differently, to look at these choices and realize like that you are, you are reshaping this or shaping the system that we have and, and that your taste matters. The democratization of this is key to me because I really do feel like, more and more we see this kind of separation between those who kind of know where it's at and understand food and have a sophisticated view of it. And then the rest of us, you know, and, and I'm unwilling to accept that as, as a reasonable response. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much to unpack in that, right. Of course, about who gets to make these kinds of decisions and, and also who's right. You know, I think that I, I, I felt like, I really wanted to know, like, how did you decide to start tasting things? (laughs) I realized, I love this question. So just to to give a little bit of background in the book, there are tasting guides and flavor wheels. And I unpack how every one of our senses plays into the experience of flavor that culminates in our mouth, right? What is what we commonly say, like, what does something taste like is really like, really the kind of fine point of smell and taste coming together and then all those other senses factoring in. And I realized it went back again to so much of what I had read where there would be these kind of edicts, you know, like, Hey, if you want to participate in the food system, you got to grow your own food and you got to ferment something and you got to look up a bunch of stuff in the dictionary to figure out what I'm talking about, you know, and you have to eat differently. And, and that's all reasonable, I suppose. But for me, you know, I, I wanted to write, I didn't have in my mind as the, like, as my reader, um, someone who's reading the New Yorker, you know, and who's like dining at the, the French laundry, you know, I had someone who's just like trying to feed her kids and, you know, buys food in the regular grocery store. You know, these are the people I lived beside in Lawrence, Kansas, when I taught at the university. And these are people I love. And I know these people have great intentions and may never have been given the opportunity or the tools to make different kinds of decisions. 
And, um, and in realizing that in even some of my earlier work around asking people to change their behaviors, it's really hard. And it's even more difficult when you don't give people a guide, you know, to doing it. And, and I realized as I was exploring these foods, I tell the loss, I talk about the loss of agricultural biodiversity through bread, wine, coffee, chocolate, and beer. And, um, and, you know, when I first started tasting coffee, for example, it's like, well, I, I thought I was a coffee sophisticate just knowing that I preferred a latte to a cappuccino. You know, like I just, I thought I knew where it was at, you know, and then here I am sitting with coffee roasters and they're saying like, do you, do you taste the jasmine? You know, do you smell the, the jasmine? I should say, do you taste these qualities? And I was like, I taste coffee guys. Like I don't taste any of that. And I realized what a long journey it was and how in getting more intimate with my food in taking time to experience it and to learning the steps on how to taste these things, I would actually be able to understand that the taste of place existed in everything. I would actually be able to discern why the taste of a craft chocolate or a craft beer was different than a Snickers bar or a Bud Light. You know, I mean, on the surface, of course you can experience these things, but I wanted to do a deep dive and gosh, it has been the most joyous part of the journey is discovering deliciousness. And, you know, I, I start off the book with a poem by Derek Wolcott, uh, Love After Love. And he, he ends the poem with, you know, with the edict to feast on your life. And that's, you know, that's the mandate of the book. That's the mandate of my work. It's, it's get your hands in there and dig in and lick your fingers and feast, you know, whether it's a, I don't know whether it's your Kentucky fried chicken or, you know, your, your grass fed, you know, free range, whatever, like know where it comes from, be informed and own those choices as you put whatever it is you're putting in your mouth there. So what does that mean in the everyday? Like there, of course, everybody has these experiences of diving deep sometimes, right? Like um, I think about first birthday cakes as a perfect example because of the smashing the cake into your face. It's like this. I guess I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that in the same category <laughs> really? of okay. a two year old. No, because I don't, I don't, I don't know what that little brain is processing. Uh -huh. For me, that awareness is about uh, not only a sensory experience, but an experience of the longer story. Okay. You know, not the, the birthday cake in the moment, but the, the story of where that wheat came from. And I don't, I don't do this with every food. I mean, you know, but but to choose a few and to recognize they like what they represent is emblematic of a bigger system, you know, um, to me is what gives me power. And, and so like, what do you, what does that mean for your friends in Lawrence, Kansas or your friends who are coffee farmers? Mm -hmm. Um, well, I think what it means for my friends in Lawrence or in San Francisco or, you know, in Jakarta or wherever is just that, um, to pay attention to something is to love it more, you know, to recognize its evanescence, to recognize its, um, its, its, its kind of longer trajectory to, to realize how much it took to get it to your cup or your plate. You know, I, I, I am truly in awe of, uh, I counted with Peter Giuliano, who's the director of the Specialty Coffee Association of America. I was like, do a back of an envelope kind of like run, in, run the numbers for me, Peter. How many hands are involved in getting a cup of coffee to my, you know, to my kitchen? And I was, I was really thinking about the metaphor of hands because I hand grind my own coffee. And every morning I'm like, ugh. I hate this. Like I could just use an electric grinder and I'd be done by now, you know? And it was really that symbolism of saying, and he counted it off for me. And he's like, you know, there's more than this, but 
but the modest estimate would be 18 sets of hands. And to go back to the place where coffee began, which is um, the center of origin for coffee is Ethiopia and South Sudan. So I was in Ethiopia for three weeks, um, spending time with those farmers and seeing firsthand what their challenges are has humbled me. And it's made me grateful for a cup of coffee in a way that I couldn't have experienced before. Now, everyone can't hop on a plane for every food, but what they can do is, uh, well, read the book or read something else or watch, you know, Anthony Bourdain or whatever takes you back to source and then kind of realize that happens with everything. And for me, as someone who I don't like the term foodie, but is very food-ish, you know, and has kind of navigated my life through food, um, I was stunned by how little I knew. And I was stunned by how much more joy I have in the experience of every food um, because I now am more informed about how it kind of came into being and how it got to me. And I mean that for everything. I mean that for the mint Milano cookie. I mean that for the carrot, the heirloom carrot. I mean it for every single thing that passes, you know, onto my table that there's a story there. And even if it's a fleeting consideration um, for five seconds in the morning or flipping over a package or thanking the farmer at the farmer's market, that it, it binds me to them. And it helps me to realize that, um, that the whole world shows up on my plate. Can you talk a little bit more about this difference between feeling awe or curiosity for the world versus like a set of you shoulds? I think the, the kind of balance between the shoulds and the curiosity for me is this. Um, curiosity is leading with an open mind and an open heart. And should means that you've already predetermined what the answer and the destination is. You should do this. Um, you must, in order to be sustainable, you must do that. And I, I write in the book that I try very hard to live by my values, but I also realize that um, I am a victim of circumstance. You know, when I'm stuck in an airport and I'm hungry, I'll eat something I ordinarily wouldn't eat. When I'm on, you know, an airplane and the flight attendant will not refill my reusable bottle, I will take the plastic cup. And, you know, but that isn't to say I didn't put that reusable bottle in my bag and carry it with me wherever I was going. I think um, when it comes to food, it was a real epiphany for me that... Um, a few weeks before the book came out, my father passed away. And so here I was expected to, first of all, birth a book while I'm grieving the death of my father, which is freaky enough. Um, but also that, you know, the mandate of the book, like I just said, is like feast on your life. It's not, it's not like grow herbs or ferment or, you know, whatever. It's like enjoy and really savor, participate in what you have. And the irony in being so grief stricken that I lost my appetite and then kind of having to go around and do interviews and talk to people and say, like, get in there and savor, you know, we can save, we can transform our food system through savoring. And here I was like not eating. And, um, you know, the book came out on November 10th. So Thanksgiving was shortly thereafter. And my aunt, was making Thanksgiving dinner and she, you know, was trying to coax me out of my grief. And she said, I made everything for you. You know, the stuffing is organic. The bird is free range, you know, and my response, I was like, yeah, yeah. But is there like, do we have the dirty green bean casserole? Like, you know, And that my anchor 
like the place where I was finding joy in that moment was in the dehydrated onion, like cream of mushroom soup, you know, like whateverness, you know, that's what brought me joy that it was not like you must do things this way. What I am suggesting is like in being curious and in being grateful, um, we approach our plate, we approach our relationships in a different way. And through that, we view them differently. And we, I think, respond differently. If, um, if food is simply caloric nourishment, then we can all just drink Soylent, you know, and call it a day. Um, but I think we all know food is memory, food is story, food is identity. And um, in using food as a lens to understand how the story of who we are is changed, I think, um, for me at least, reshapes how I look at it. You know, so it's it's nourishment in the broader sense. It's um, it's you know what the, the mono diet, you know, the monocultures we sow in fields means in the larger sense. That depletion in a field in the soil, the loss of biodiversity, you know, right there at the beginning is about uh, a loss in us, a depletion in us. Um, And that's what I want to reclaim, you know, and that's what I think um, a broad prescriptive like feast on your life allows for. Yeah, that reminds me of um, Devin and I lived in Mexico and worked in a small town there for a number of years. And one of the projects we did was this photography project uh, working with these youth researchers who did a lot of documentation of basically food in their homes, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the pictures is um, of Leo having lunch with her family, and there's this you know beautiful spread of food on the table, and there's also this big bottle of Pepsi, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. we've shown these photos like all over the world, and every time everybody only wants to talk about this bottle of Pepsi, wow. right? So yeah. it's it, one time we were we were showing this work and. Leo is there and the lady comes in and she's irate, you know, that there's this bottle of Pepsi um, in this picture, you know, um, and and she says, like, you know, basically, like, you indigenous people know that Pepsi is ruining the world, right? It's ruining your teeth. It's, you know, it's contaminating all the water. And I can't believe you would support something like this, you know, and, and Leo's response was, well, you know, that was an editorial choice by me mm-hmm. to leave in that bottle of Pepsi. My cousins had come from the coast. We were all having a meal together. If you look at everything else on the table, it's all handmade. You know, most of it's grown by my aunts and uncles. And we yeah. were celebrating, right? Yeah. So we had our whole thing and we had our Pepsi and it made the meal all together. So I think that she really talks about what you're talking about with this like complex set of relationships that make up this ability to save her life, right? That's relational, that doesn't exist outside of globalization and change, but it also exists deeply in a traditional world where Sunday lunch is important and fabulous. Absolutely. And that... It recognizes our humanity. Right. I mean, walking that tightrope of like, is everything grass fed? You know, those moments. And and maybe you haven't had them, but I sure have. I walk into a grocery store, a traditional grocery store, conventional, and I'm like, there's no food in here for me, you know? And sometimes I wish there was. Sometimes I wish I could lighten up. And sometimes I can. 
you know, but sometimes I can't. And there, I have very strong lines around what really like is my bottom line. But, um, I think when you first started describing that, there was something in me that felt like it was withering, you know, and it was something that felt like judgment. And I think that is so indicative of the schism or maybe even the chasm um, that exists in the environmental movement. And that is one where people feel condescended to where, and this is not just, you know, exclusive to one thing. I mean, we could look at kind of what's happening in the political discourse right now and have the same conversation, but that like, my goal is to bring people into the conversation. My goal is to celebrate people's achievements. My goal is to say, sit at my table and let's have a conversation. But if I can't get you to the table because, you know, I've ruled you out because you like carry, you know, you have a Pepsi in your hand instead of, you know, uh, water kefir, you know, like, I mean, I've lost you. And if this movement, you know, just to speak generally for a moment, if we were going to save the planet, if we were going to rehaul our food system, um, through the efforts of foodies, through the efforts of, you know, named environmentalists, so to speak, like we would have already done that because we are legion, but we are not everyone. And this messy middle is not being acknowledged. They're not being spoken to. They're not being addressed. And I really strived in this book, but really in my life to like embrace my messy middle, you know, to allow myself to let down and to not hold myself so rigidly. And that doesn't mean that I don't have standards. What it means is that I'm willing to give myself a break and I'm willing to understand that my, my singular definition of what sustainability looks like um, may not be yours. And for me, that that allows for a much broader group to join in this conversation that has um, mainly maybe in, in some of these other, you know, works, uh, books or conversations been overlooked. I think it really has. And I think um, I read your book and came away from it thinking like this is a deeply feminist standpoint. Where there's <gasps> not one solution. So, <laughs> thank you, yeah. thank you for seeing my feminism. That is such high praise. This book belongs to women. I wrote this book for women. I wrote this book for a Midwestern housewife. I can tell you the neighborhood she lives in in Lawrence, Kansas. I even, you know, I know her name. I know who I wrote this book for. You know, her name is Lee Beth. She lives west of Iowa, and I know she's doing the best she can. And I know how deeply she cares. And I wrote this book to celebrate women. And there were these tensions, you know, I write at one point where it's like, here I am realizing women hold up the world. Like women feed us. We're the ones who make the purchasing decisions. We're the ones growing the crops. And yet the experts are men. And even within my own work, I was struggling to find people who look like me. And it's not because they're not there. It's that they haven't been widely recognized the way they should have been. And and um, and to call myself out on that, you know, is really important for me. And to live with that complexity and say, and I'm trying to do better. And I want to reach for more. And to allow for this complexity is to do exactly what you're saying, which is to subvert a system that wants to eradicate the complexity of relationships and say, you're either this or this, you know, and I am willing to say, um, look, instead of like the, or like, let's work on looking at the, and, you know, we are this and this, and how can we find that place of commonality? Yeah. And I think it, that really comes across that, you know, 
one solution is not going to work, right? So sustainability or hope for the future or kind of whatever you want to call it is a deeply imaginative act, right? Yeah. And uh, fortunately, imagination is not like there's, there's, there's not a monopoly on that. Right. So, so there, there has to be all these different solutions. There has to be kind of a, I don't know, a, a pluralistic look at this that's happening in all these different ways. But could you talk about one of those ways that I really see coming up over and over is, um, is generosity in your book mm-hmm. and, um, people, I mean, maybe it's the questions you asked. Maybe it's the way you showed up. I'm not exactly sure what happened, but I was really struck by how much generosity people showed you and how you think that plays a role. Gosh, that's so beautiful. Thank you. Um, They did. They did. And I think it was the combination of several things. Um, First, they are generous and good. And... um, what this journey did was restore my faith in humanity and um, the generosity that was extended to me by people who had so little. I mean, this almost sounds like, you know, whatever. Um, so boilerplate or like, oh, I went to the like poor place and everyone was so rich in there, you know, giving to me. But it's true. And um, and being confronted with that care and not just generosity with me but generosity with their communities. Um, And I will also tell you, I showed up having done the work. You know, uh, five years you mentioned earlier sounds like a short period of time, but five years of not having a job, five years of dipping into my savings, five years of tying these trips together and making it work felt both long and short. And um, the, the people I stayed with in Ethiopia, you know, it was the the family of the driver when I worked on a show for PBS, the guy who drove me from Oakland to Berkeley, you know, and I'm telling him, oh, I'm going to Ethiopia in a couple of weeks. And he said, my family's in Addis. Do you want to stay with them? (laughs) And like the kind of audacity of the offer and then the audacity of me saying, I would love to, you know, and um, the generosity it took in him, the courage it took in me, and then that place where we meet. And um I I wasn't interested in stepping into these scenarios and then stepping out again and giving some sort of uh, like outsider perspective. Um, I wanted intimacy because I don't think, I think the reason some of those conversations, books, whatever, treatises on food, the reason they haven't worked is because they haven't touched the heart. You know, they've been these deeply intellectual exercises and I remember even reading every book, honestly, I'd read on, on chocolate. Um, none of them gave me like the steamy, sexy heat of the cacao forest. Like, oh my God, like that place assaults you with just juiciness and just, ugh, you know, and I was like, why didn't I know this? I've read every book I could get my hands on. Why? Why didn't any of them get in there and tell me about the guts of this and the juice of this? And that's what I wanted to do. And sometimes my questions to people seemed on the surface audacious. You know, some of them or my my requests to people, you know, hey, coffee farmers, show me your hands, you know, and 
some of them are awkwardly holding out their hands like who is this nut job <laughs> you know like where did she come from and then i tried to explain like i want people to see the hands that made their coffee like that that mattered to me and i i talk you know and, and without that image i couldn't have gotten there with my story you know um I asked a man named Vicente Norero. He's a coffee, he's a cacao farmer, excuse me. So cacao becomes chocolate. He's a cacao farmer in Ecuador. And we met um, in the week leading up to Easter. And, you know, uh, during this time to, to, to kind of embody the suffering of Christ, uh, people will carry heavy wooden crosses. They will drag these crosses through the streets, strapped to their back. They will don um, crowns made of barbed wire. So they are feeling the crown of thorns. And I turned to Vicente after spending a day on his farm. The first day we spent many days together. And I said, what is your cross to bear? You know, and it, again, such a like, like surprising question, but that's what elicited the answer of like the redemption in his family story, the redemption in trying to make something that was fallow grow in himself and in his cacao farm. And, um, and so I guess, you know, this is a long answer to your short question, but it was really for me about using the work as a mirror and trying to find myself reflected in the glass of wine, in the bar of chocolate, in the farmer's field. And sometimes the only way to do that was to um, ask the kind of questions I was asking of myself, of how I wanted to live this life of how I wanted to experience the world. And, um, and, you know, I'm grateful that what happened was uh, a generosity of act and of response to my sometimes um, wacky and weird questions. <laughs> and how do you see your role as a storyteller in this? Um, I see my role, you know, so funny, like, uh, Vanity Fair magazine did a green issue. They did a couple of them. And in one of them, they called me the environmental messenger. And it seemed like, so like, what, you know, at the time, like, I'm like, who am I, you know, what are you, what are you putting on me? But actually, I, I don't think there's a better description for what I'm trying to do. And that is, I want to be the messenger. I am not here to tell anybody what to do. That is not my job. You are smart enough to figure it out on your own. But what I am here to do and what is my, my role is to give you enough information to help you make an informed decision. And I, I take that role very seriously. And uh, I mean that in the depth of research. You know, I'm a scientist's daughter. Uh, we immigrated here, my family, through National Institutes of Health, you know, uh, sponsoring my father, you know, he was a cancer researcher who became a psychiatrist and I'm never going to give you like weak data. Um, but I also believe in the construct of the heart and, um, I'm never going to shy away from my ownership of this care because what I have found in that kind of sterile environmental reportage where we're citing facts is, um, and, and not talking about the heartbreak is that something something sad happens. And that is, there's a disconnect. And I remember, um, I remember someone asking me like, how can you call yourself a journalist when you have an agenda? It was when I was interviewing, I was the environmental correspondent for NBC for a while. And I turned to the person interviewing me and I said, I do have an agenda for clean water and clean air. And I will never step away from that agenda. 
Um, and I think speaking from that place makes me a stronger storyteller, not a weaker one. And, um, and I'm so grateful for the expansion of creative nonfiction and for the allowing um, of this exploration of not only the head, but the heart and of being able to say when grounded, in fact, I'm not talking about like just spewing your opinion out of nowhere, you know, but I'm talking about thinking critically about the data, looking about at the responses that are elicited from that data and then being able to share the expanse of that and trust that people can make their own decisions and enables us to arrive at a different place where I'm not saying I'm doing this because Rachel Maddow said to or Bill O'Reilly said to I'm doing it because I w- received information that allowed me to make a decision that resonates for me. We keep kind of circling around really this connection between having information, but being able to act from where you're where you actually are, right? And the yeah. conditions of your life. And so like, what do you imagine that as a place of making change versus the set of prescriptive actions or yeah. something like that? Like what, what's different about that? What, what changes the way that we engage with the world or change? I think it's allowing. Um, I'm going to use a totally different example and see if this, this helps. I used to be a yoga teacher and uh, you know, for the most part, I was I was a Kundalini yoga teacher. I wore white. I didn't, you know, I mean, I, I don't really smoke, but occasionally I do. I don't. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I woke up at six a.m. I meditated. You know, I I was just I was a very, um, you know, pure vessel, <laughs> as it were. Um, but I still lived in this world, and I teach this class that I loved but hated because it was at seven a.m. in the morning, and uh, you know. I showed up to class at 7.03 one day and I said, I'm so sorry. Um, I ate way too much ice cream last night, you guys. And I just couldn't like, I couldn't get here any faster than I just did. And people came up after, after the class and were like, oh my gosh, you eat ice cream. I was like, what do you think I am? You got like, you know, like I'm just like you. Like I just, I know something about the yoga sutras and I've studied like the body and asana, you know, but I'm not that different. And I feel like, so much of this is built on like, I'm better than you are, you know, look at me roasting a pig, look at me eating fancy food, look at me weeding, you know, and I am better than you. There's this embedded kind of condescension. And all I'm trying to say to people is like, Hey, Hey guys, I'm trying to do the best I can. Want to join me? You know, I've got some information you don't. Cause I like spent the last five years, like, you know, making ends meet and traveling the world. Let's talk about coffee. You know, maybe with a cigarette in our hands, who knows? But you know that like, I just, I want that. I want to allow for that. And that's what seven years of living in the Midwest did for me. I moved from my green bubble in New York city. You know, I got my, my MBA in the green bubble of San Francisco. And then I moved to Lawrence, you know, and Lawrence, Kansas. And all of a sudden, you know, the people that I had been talking about, the farmers growing roundup ready soybeans, for example, were my neighbors, you know? So how do you reconcile that when you realize like they actually care about you? And I mean, care in the very explicit, intimate you kind of way. And yet you have been saying they don't care. And, um, and you know, your favorite person who like hunts his own food also happens to be a libertarian, you know, and, and who may or may not vote for Donald Trump in this upcoming election. Like, how do you reconcile these things? And I haven't reconciled them. But I'm now willing to hold that complexity and to recognize the humanity in people that before um, I didn't see. It's not that they weren't there, but that I, I, 
in many ways, like dismissed because they weren't part of my conversation. And in doing research on kind of um, why it looks like people aren't acting, I was really struck by um, research from two behavioral economists at Duke University who talk about the finite pool of worry. And they say, you know, in order to get people to really like kind of engage with what you care about, you either have to speak within the frame of their existing cares or you have to displace one of their worries. And um, that was so epiphanic for me because I then was able to turn that on myself and realize, yes, I care about Syrian refugees. Yes, I care about polar bears on ice flows. But if you think that's top of mind when I wake up in the morning, it's not. And it's not because I'm dumb. It's not because I'm evil. And it's not because I don't care. It's because my little brain can only hold so much. And today I need to worry about doing this interview with you, getting myself breakfast, talking to my sister while she's in Hawaii, you know, meeting my book deadline, my deadline for the thing I'm writing today, going to the grocery store, like, you know, that, and I just like, I'm sorry, I, I didn't do anything for the Syrian refugees today, you know, and, and, and I mean that sincerely. But what I also mean is that like, I learned that I wanted to talk about issues in a different way, in ways that would become intimate. So I will talk about war through food. You know, I will talk about reconciliation through food. I will talk about my heartbreaking. And I just uh, worked on a piece that, you know, where I asked the question, like, what's the flavor of resilience? You know, what's the flavor of beginning again? I have a broken heart, broken from my father, broken from a relationship that was, you know, an intimate relationship. And like, how do I move on? You know, and I think these are things that like transcend the divide and they, they glue us back together. Like I said before, um, but that's, that's, I don't know, that's to me what I'm working on. How do we heal what's torn? How do we build the bridges? And, um, I believe we do it through food. Well, thank you so much. That's a really nice place to end. I'm so thank you. glad I had thank a chance so to talk much. to you today. Me too. I'm glad I had a chance to explore your questions too, because that's, you know, that's half of it right there, putting it out there and hoping someone really hears you, you know, really gets you. And um, you did. So thanks. Delicious Revolution is brought to you by us by me and Chelsea, specifically by our consulting business. We provide participatory research, communications, and creative work to organizations that are building food movements. What's your food movement? Let us know and get in touch. Deliciousrevolutionshow.com. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place. Produced by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wells. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you have a food story of your own, we'd love to hear it. Call 510-859-7430 and leave us a message. Of course, you can get in touch with us in lots of different ways, and they are all on the website, deliciousrevolutionshow.com. If you like Delicious Revolution and want to help our show reach more people, please leave us a review on iTunes and send out a link on your favorite social network. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.